This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse to start your free trial membership. Season 9, episode 33. This is Writing Excuses Microcasting. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. I'm Mary. And I'm Howard. And we're taking questions this time off of Facebook. So, on Facebook, Martin Olson asks... Are there biases against non-English writers writing in English who try to get published? And do we have any suggestions for them? Uh, I have several friends who are non-English writers writing in English, and they have not noticed any problems with this. As long as the English is competent, I've heard several agents say that they actually like non-native writers because they have a tendency to approach the language in different ways than and to not use the same cliches that native English speakers will use. Excellent. We'll just take that as our response. Um, next one's actually directed at you, Howard. Scott Uh-oh. Richens asks, what is the most difficult thing Howard experienced when first creating Schlock Mercenary? Wow. Um, the most the most difficult thing i had to teach myself to draw uh it it was a thing that i did not know how to do and it was it was continually frustrating because there were stories that i wanted to tell that i put on the back burner because i wasn't ready to tell them yet not because i didn't know how to tell the story but because i didn't know how to draw the story and the first schlocktoberfest story with the uh, uh the diamond beetles where we switched points of view in the last mm-hmm. week of the story uh which was huge fun to write i sat on that for 14 months because i just wasn't ready to i i, I wasn't ready artistically mm-hmm. uh, so that learning curve the, the artistic learning curve uh was the most difficult and to be honest remains the most difficult because <sighs> reasons <laughs> Next question. Joy asks, are you ever too old to try to get published? No. 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 Um, I'll share a little okay, story no. here. Um, <laughs> when I broke in, I was 29. I think I've shared this story before. And my editor talked about just how young I was. It was just so bizarre to him. And when he wrote out the press releases, he compared me to Christopher Paolini, which he was 15 and yeah. I was 30. But to my editor and basically everyone at Tor, that was basically the same thing because you young kids. Um, this is an industry where you regularly see people um, retiring and writing and then getting published. There is, I would say, no bias against it. Nope. Go for it. Um, Rachel asks, in telling a milieu story, what are some pointers to keep it from becoming about the characters and in, uh, instead staying focused on the environment? Well... There are very few times when you're going to want to write something that's a straight milieu story because they are frankly dull. Um, But it is basically what you're looking at is in the middle part of the story when you're looking at the conflicts, the conflicts all need to be directly related to getting out of the milieu. A lot of times people will introduce conflicts that are related to interpersonal relationships between the characters and that's when it's going to switch over into a character story. Right. And I would say that when you talked about this, we talked about the idea of bracketing. Yes. Where it starts with the milieu, goes into a character conflict, deals with the character conflict, and then ends with the exiting the milieu. Yes. The, the thing I want to point out is, un, 
you don't have to slave yourself to to one, one specific thing. I yes. Mean, if the story you're trying to tell is a character story, then just tell a character story yeah. and don't worry about yeah. forcing it into a milieu. Alan Dean Foster's uh, sen- Sentenced to Prism was a man versus nature story with a guy on an alien planet where nothing works like he expects it to work. Very much a milieu story uh, with some character stuff in it. Um, and I think, uh, using that as a model, I think that a lot of man versus nature stories mm-hmm. are great ways to handle this. Right. Um, here's somebody who wants a piece of my hair so they can clone me. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no. Um, Philip asks, you mentioned that you've learned a lot since Elantris was published. If you were to rewrite Elantris now, how would you change it? And I would suggest that we throw this out to the podcasters. If you could go back and rewrite your first published... I did. Yeah. How, okay. How did you change it? Uh, the UK edition of Shades Ooh. of Milk and Honey is two chapters longer than the US edition. Um, there were a, basically, I had a lot of first novelist mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, my ending wrapped up too fast. I dropped some characters. Um, I didn't give enough screen time between my main character and mm-hmm. the romantic lead that she wound up with. So I went back and fixed all of those things. Um, I would say for me, I would want to strongly resist the urge to change too much. Like I could update the entire book to my co- contemporary writing style. I've gotten much better at prose, for instance. Um, and I would not want to do that because I feel that you tweak the art too much, you run into to problems. But there are a few things that I would do that are that are just basically things like this. Like my climax of Elantris, um, what is actually happening is really confusing to a lot of readers. I didn't explain it well enough. The map doesn't quite match what's going on. Um, and the map and it matching is really important for this, st- this story. I would fix that one big problem. Uh, to make it much more clear what's going on. Otherwise, I would leave it the same um, because I don't want to be changing my art. Either of you want to weigh in? Oh, boy. Yeah, I fall in like like what you just said. I can <clears throat> go back, and I, I have recently gone back and reread Serial Killer uh, as I start to write the new ones, and I can see a lot of problems with it, but I wouldn't want to change them. That might not be what the question is, um, no, you know, I don't want to create a special edition version or anything. Yeah, see, coming from theater, it's like you're always adapting and changing as you learn how the audience, how the art plays to the audience. I and just think mm-hmm. the danger is what happened with Lucas revising his films over oh, yeah, and over yeah, yeah. again. Oh. No, I agree with that. Yeah. And, and it's not something that I'm going to do every time there's a mm-hmm. new edition of it. But yeah. when, when my editor said, is there anything you want to change? I was like, why, yes, there is. <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to take a completely different tack mm-hmm. because uh, on the one hand, I will never go back and rewrite and redraw the early stuff because that way lies madness. Um, at one point, I thought I might. Uh, but if I had it, if knowing what I know now with the story as it's shaped now, if I had the ability to go back, what would I change? I would take the first 30 months of Schlock Mercenary and write them so that I am correctly foreshadowing who these characters are, mm-hmm. who these characters become, what this universe becomes. Because right now, the first 30 months are uh, gag strips that are foreshadowing the fact that this might become a longer form yeah. story. Uh, Matthew asks, um, I am a law student and I'm looking to improve my proofreading and copy editing. Do you have any advice on doing this? I've actually worked a little bit as a proofreader. Um, 
And one of the things is finding ways to force yourself to slow down mm. because, uh, because you'll skim. Do you do the thing where you read backward? You take a sentence? Uh, sometimes. Yeah. Um, the biggest thing that I do is I use a piece of paper that I put over the text so that I cannot skim ahead. Oh, so that's I can clever. only see one sentence yep. at a time. And I put a pen on each word as I go through so that I have to look at each word individually. Mary, you mentioned uh, reading it out loud. I, uh, yeah. I, had been through, I had been through four proofing passes of a 20,000 word story and I'd been resisting reading it out loud because 20,000 words and then I read it out loud and found dozens of things that the other passes had missed. Mm -hmm. The trick that I learned um, back when I worked as a, as a proofer was to read it backwards word for word. Um, then you're not getting any grammar stuff but you're going to catch so many more spelling and punctuation errors. Yeah. All right. Um, Brandon asks, I've read that if you truly want to be a writer, you need to spend at least an hour a day writing. Doesn't matter what you write as long as you write it. How much time do you typically spend per day writing? And I would not say enough. that this is this that you've heard, Brandon, is not necessarily true. Now, I'm not speaking from personal experience because I'm a day-by-day -day writer. It was best for me to take a block of time, but an hour a day would not have been enough for me. I would rather have had four hours in one block every four days than an hour each day um, because I need about four hours for it to really work for and me. And I would argue that uh, it doesn't matter what you're writing. Yeah. Absolutely doesn't work for me anymore mm. because I can kill an hour writing a blog post. emails yeah. and blog posts yeah. and outlines, even outlines, and that does not fulfill the writerly obligation to yeah. improve my craft the way writing prose at, you know, 800 words an hour might. Yeah, what we're all talking about here is basically this is a, a way of rewiring and remapping your brain. Mm -hmm. And people are going to have different thresholds for that. But it's like yeah. any other piece of yeah. thing. Any other piece of thing, that's very specific. Um, the analogy that I use is, um, you know, you, you took math in high school. Yeah. I used to be, I used to know how fractions worked. And really, doing fractions now without a calculator, I'm kind of hopeless. And it's not that I don't know how to, how to do it, or didn't know how to do it at one point. It's that that is a piece of wiring that I let atrophy. Right. And some people can go for a long time without writing, and it doesn't atrophy too much, but it atrophies. I do know, I want to make a mention of, binge, I do know binge writers. Yeah. These are people who have to write their book in three months and then not write for like three or four months. Yes. My friend Jancy, we've had her on the podcast, is one of these. Eric Flint is one of these. Mm -hmm. This is so you have to learn. John your own Ringo is style. one of these. Yeah. New York Times bestseller, yeah. and that's the way he works. Yeah. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So, let's stop for our book of the week. Mary, you have our book of the week, which you narrated. I just finished narrating Attack the Geek by Michael R. Underwood. And this is uh, this is actually a side quest uh, to his re-raise series. And it's wonderful. The The magic system is called geekomancy. And basically, you harness the collective power of geekdom through the love of different physical objects. And you release the magic either by tearing a magic card, literally from Magic the Gathering, uh, or you can have some things that have nostalgia Ouch. batteries. I know. It's painful. Uh, or you can have some things like you have nostalgia batteries, essentially, for uh, for lightsabers, where it will turn a plastic prop into an actual functioning lightsaber. And basically, a collection of geeks are in a gaming shop, and they get attacked. That sounds awesome. Yes. And, and there's this horrible moment when someone has to, to tear a unique. Oh... Uh... This is Brandon's new favorite book. Uh, Audiblepodcast.com slash excuse. Pick up a copy of, well, start a 30-day free trial membership, and then pick up a copy of Attack the Geek by Michael R. Underwood, narrated by Mary Robinette Kowal, and uh, and have Mary read to you an awesome story. Now, next question comes from Andy. He says, do you add foreshadowing and the editing stage, or are you just that good to put the right subtle hints in as you go? Oh, I'm just that good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The answer is no, Andy. I would say that, uh, at least for me, getting the foreshadowing right is one of those things that I'm tweaking all the way up to the last draft. Yeah. Um, And I've gotten pretty good at it, but you know what? I cannot do this one without um, beta readers. I can't get that right without getting people to read my book and giving me a feel for what they're picking up. Um, it's, it feels to me one of these things that you just have to have external input to get right. As, as the resident discovery writer, I have to say, a lot of the time, the things that I find myself writing, I will decide in the moment, oh, this would be cool foreshadowing for this other thing. I'll make sure to put that other thing in at the end. And I, yeah, I got to say, there have been times when I really am just that good uh, and I, I realize, oh, that one thing I was totally telegraphing, I was totally telegraphing this awesome moment I want to write. Uh, more often, though, what I'm doing is hanging a dozen of Chekhov's guns on the wall and then at the end of the story picking three to fire and the rest of them were red herrings. Mm-hmm. Um, How, Brady asks, this is a great question, how does one continually improve one's craft as a writer beyond simply practicing rather than stagnating? By forcing yourself to try something you've never done before. Yes. Try a genre or a Mm -hmm. form you haven't written. Uh, Try a different length. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Practice only makes perfect if you are practicing things that you are not good at. And as a writer, identifying the things that you are not good at is probably kind of tricky. But if you have a reader who lets you know that, you know, you're, uh, when you write female characters, the dialogue feels off. Well, that's a thing that you can now practice. Um, yeah, I would say that this is a very important one to me. Every book that I've released that is not one of the thick epic fantasies has been me getting done with one of those and saying, I need to do something completely new and struggling to figure out a new type of story. Yeah. Ditto to all of this. Uh, Richard says, I don't have time to ask a question. I'm washing my dog. Why are you on Facebook? <laughs> the dog is also on Facebook. <laughs> hey, hey, you're getting water. Every oh, good night. <laughs> this um, is my laptop. So, do you... <laughs> How long can we keep this going? <laughs> Come on. Oh, my goodness. Okay. It's only 15 minutes long. <laughs> this Facebook app is annoying, by the way. Um, do you have any writing exercises that you do consistently? Yes. Mary, they mention yours. The oh. 30, uh, the describe a room thing. Yes, I do, I do the describe a room thing on a fairly mm -hmm. regular basis, which is uh, when I'm waiting for something, I'll, I'll, I'll just sit down and describe the place that I'm in. Um, the other one that I will do uh, is that I will, um, I'll sometimes, sometimes I don't even actually do all of the rewriting on it, but I will go through how a scene would play from the other character's point of view. Uh, on a fairly regular basis. Oh, that's basis. cool. Okay, I've got a cool one that I was actually planning to use for the writing prompt. Do we just want to do that yeah, now do to be done? Yeah, do the writing prompt now. Okay. Um, Philip K. Dick, one of my very favorite authors, he wrote The Man in the High Castle using the I Ching as a randomizer. And every time he came to a major decision or a major plot turn, he would consult the Book of Changes to decide what would happen next. And so I have found this to be so fun as a writing exercise. Introduce a random element, whether it's dice or I actually own a copy of the I Ching and the sticks and everything, uh, flip a coin, and then write a story using that and force yourself to follow whatever chance tells you to do. Man, that would be awesome because you brought that I Ching to one of our gaming sessions once and we mm -hmm. had so much fun Oh, it's, it's with a that. delight to use. Um, yeah, using that or tarot or something like this to, to develop your story, great idea. Well, this has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. Right? <laughs> if you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storytellers' stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one -on -one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.